So we have been, uh, um, uh, I think this is the eighth lesson in our series, um, uh, Unleashed, through the first eight chapters of, of the book of Acts. And, and as you guys, if you've been coming, you know that we're looking at how the disciples who, who followed Jesus, who, who uh, heard Jesus teach, who saw Jesus do miracles, who saw Jesus interact with the hurting, the neglected, the left out, um, who saw Jesus uh, raised from the dead, like how they all of a sudden were sent out into their culture, sent out to the society to be disciples and to live out their faith in a culture that, 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 that wasn't amicable to the faith, in a culture where people didn't follow Jesus, in a culture where people's lives didn't reflect what God called them to. And how did they as disciples for the first time in their lives go out and engage these people and live their lives uh, next to them uh, and, and try, to, try to live out their faith as disciples but also as a community? reaching the area around them. And remember that Jesus, at the very beginning of Acts chapter 1, um, tells the, the disciples that they're going to go out into the world, they're going to, to be his witnesses to Jerusalem, to, to Judea, sorry, to Samaria, and to all the ends of the earth. And so he sent his disciples out um, to be witnesses for him. And we're, we're kind of watching how that unfolds. And if you look, last week we covered most of Acts chapter 4, but if you look at the end of, of Acts chapter uh, 4, that we didn't cover last week. I just want to read a little section to you. This is going to be very similar to the end of Acts chapter 2. It's one of these moments where Luke kind of pulls back and he gives you this, this, this check-in, this overview of how are the Christians as a whole doing. Because, of course, Acts zeroes in on individuals. It zeroes in on, on um, kind of heroes of the faith, most prominently, as we will see eventually, Paul. Um, but... Don't, you know, don't, don't lose sight of the fact that this is a group of believers who are living life together currently in Jerusalem. Um, and, 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 and Luke gives us some insight into what they were like. And he says, starting in verse 32 of chapter 4, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, and by the way, just notice how extreme he's saying, no one, no one claimed that this is mine, this is mine to spend, this is mine to enjoy, that they had everything in common. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all, that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. And so think about the picture you get of these, of these believers, of this community of Christians here in Acts chapter 4, that, that, that um, whatever they owned, land, houses, money, food, that they didn't consider that for their own benefit, to enrich them but that they shared with, with everyone who was in the community to such an extent that we don't know how many people exactly were, in the, uh, were among the community, but out of, uh, we know at some point it was at least 5,000 men who were baptized. And so thousands of people, out of all these thousands, Luke can write that no one needed anything because the Christians watched out for each other and the apostles continued to preach. And so far in Acts, we've seen these apostles who, if you read the Gospels, they make mistake after mistake after mistake. They deny Jesus. They doubt Jesus. They don't understand what Jesus is teaching. They're, they're fighting amongst themselves about who's going to be best, who's going to be the greatest. Jesus has to constantly rebuke them. Jesus has a nickname for them of, of little faithers, like micro-faithers, micro-believers, that they had such little faith that, that the Son of God gave them that nickname. And you fast forward to the book of Acts, and so far in Acts, you have not seen any Christian make a single mistake. 
it's easy to look at this and imagine that these guys were just perfect. No one's fought. No one's greedy. There's not even someone who's hungry or needy of something because every single person is willing to share what they have. By the way, this, this, you, you can't picture this being like our community where we have such affluence that to give to those in need, you can just kind of give from your excess. Some of them could have done that. But they were even willing to give even when they inconvenienced them to make sure that other brothers and sisters in Christ didn't go without need. The love, the sacrifice that existed here is amazing and astounding. And so to look at them, it could seem like that these Christians, these early believers, that they had no problem, that they were a perfect church in many ways. It's kind of frustrating. It's like in a class when you have um, you know, that one student who does all the homework and does the... Ex- I remember um, in Honors Physics, Physics 2 that took in spring 2004, there were uh, nine or ten of us. And there was one guy who not only did all the homework, but he did all the problems in the book even if they weren't signed. And he wasn't the smartest kid in the class, but he worked constantly at it. And so when it came time for test time, what did we all want? We wanted a curve, right? And guess who did everything in his power to keep us from getting a curve? Mustafa was his name. I still remember his name. Uh, and, he, and, he, uh, and, and he would just break the curve every time because the kid didn't make a mistake. And, and, and it was so frustrating to see that. And, and likewise, it can be kind of frustrating to see the early churches like, do they make mistakes? Do they sin? Do they have problems? Do they fight? And up to this point, we haven't seen an instance of that. Up to this point, we haven't seen the church struggle. A church is sent out into all the world, and we haven't even seen an instance of sin. But as we're going to find out, that, that even though Luke has given us highlights, that the church has a lot of problems. If you've ever read any of the letters of Paul, which uh, were not quite to the point where Paul would have been writing, because he's not even a Christian yet, but Paul's writing some early Christian communities... And they have tremendous problems, problems that if they existed in our churches, we would consider them tremendous scandals. And Paul writes to them. So we know the issues are going on amongst Christians, but Luke hasn't highlighted them at this point. But what we're going to see is Luke's going to bring up that the believers weren't perfect, that there was something going on, that there were people um, amongst them who weren't living out the Christian life. And so for the first time, Luke gives us this insight to, what, it would, to, to, to uh, what was going on in the community. And I want you to notice what sin he highlights. What sin is it that Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, decides to kind of pinpoint as the sin that he takes to be a big problem in the early church? So, chapter 5, verse 1. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, the insinuation, as we'll see in a moment, is that they sold their land and that they pretended like they were given 100% of the proceeds, but they kept back a little bit of it. Now, to set that up, imagine what it would have been like to be in this community. There's a tremendous energy. There's a tremendous excitement. Because all these people are converts to Christianity, and they've been converts within just a recent few weeks. They're seeing the apostles do amazing things, but they're in a community where people are visibly being generous. The first time you see Barnabas, he brings a lot of money and gives it to the apostles for them to give to the poor. Can you imagine being in a community like that? Not only would it be amazing, 
But you would also start to, to, to realize that how do you get attention in a community like that? How do you start to get a good reputation? How do you get people to notice you? What gets valued in that community? It's generosity. We all have this tug to want to be noticed. We all have this tug to want to, to get attention, for people to think great of us. You have felt that in your classes. You felt that in high school. You felt that right now amongst your friend groups. I remember in high school, um, I played basketball, and, um, and, and the coach and I, we had an, an all right relationship, but I was not his favorite, even though I was clearly the best on the team. And, and so, uh, you know, it was, it, it just small-town newspapers, they would report on the game, and it would be like three paragraphs, and the coach would always call it, and the coach would be the one that said, here's what happened, right? And so uh, after the games, I would always look for the paper the next morning to see whose name was mentioned. And my name was almost never mentioned, right? And it infuriated, infuriated me. I remember one game, uh, it was a tie game. It was one of our big rivals, and it was the last few seconds of the game, and they had the ball, and, and somebody had gotten injured, and they had a guy who he clearly hadn't played much, and I was guarding him, and, it, and he had the ball. And I just, he just completely just uh, telegraphed that he was going to pass it to someone else. I saw it. I jumped out in front of it, stole the ball, went all the way down, got fouled, hit both free throws, put our team up. Then they had to foul us, so they fouled us. Uh, um, I mean, we scored. They turned it over, and then they had to foul us, right? Um, and and my, one of my teammates hit two free throws to put us up by four. So the next morning, I wake up, I get the paper up, and guess whose name is mentioned in the paper? Not me who had actually given us the lead. Not me, who had stolen the ball when they had the chance to take the final shot of the game and win, but my teammate, who literally contributed almost nothing to the game at that point. And his name was in there. And we were being furious about that, because, like, I'm the one that stole the ball. I'm the one that guessed where he was going to pass it. I'm the one who hit the free throws with the game on the line. And, and he did none of that, but guess what? The coach liked him. And I remember being so jealous that next morning, because one of the things that we all wanted was to be in the newspaper, right? Like, when, when you, uh, you know, in these different environments, you want recognition. You want to be noticed. Even the best of us feel that. And if you were in this context, if you were in the early community, you would start to want to be noticed. You would want to be noticed for your generosity. And so if you're Ananias and Sapphira, you are going to be tempted. You're going to feel greatly tempted to lie about how much you gave. To be hypocrites. And you can almost see them because it says that an Ananias did it uh, with Sapphira's knowledge, right? She knew. It almost like they conspired that this is how that they would get attention. This is how they would get a good reputation. And they laid their money at the apostles' feet. Now think about this for a moment because the sin that he highlights, the sin that Luke highlights, inspired by the Holy Spirit, it's hypocrisy. It's people pretending to be something they're not. Throughout the history of the church, all throughout the scriptures we see, but throughout church history and in your experience, I bet you can see that one of the biggest temptations in our life is hypocrisy. That we all want to seem like something we're not. And when it comes to a spiritual level, you want to seem more spiritual, more faithful, more holy, more righteous, more important, more gifted than you really are. Why do you think that Luke highlights this sin? It's a persistent sin, but so is lust. So is greed. By the way, their sin is not greed. We're going to find this out. that They could have, they could have kept all the money. There would not have been an issue. That's not God's problem with them. God's problem with them is the hypocrisy. 
Just think for a moment, why do you think hypocrisy was, is so dangerous to the church that, that God kind of highlights it at this point? And by the way, if you don't know the story, Ananias and Sapphira are going to be struck dead. It's the only instance we have of that. Of God striking people dead for their sin, both of them. So why is it so important? I'm sorry, why is, it, why is hypocrisy such a big deal to God? that he would highlight and take extraordinary measures to pass judgment on people who were hypocrites in the early church. Because, if it, you know, I've sat around and, and, and heard a lot of people confess sins, I've confessed sins, but most people don't sit around and really struggle with how bad hypocrisy is in their life. It's not really something we talk about. It, but it's the only sin in Acts that someone gets struck dead for, right? Why is hypocrisy such a major issue to God? Here to the church, a lot of outsiders, you know, just say, Come to church with you. I'm not going to church because there's sinners there, there's hypocrites there. Mm-hmm. They go to the church, but I see what they do in this <coughs> or whatever, and so that's a that's very hurtful to the church. It's hurtful to the church, so people see the hypocrisy. Jesus and four gospels denouncing the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, and yeah, just before the- yeah, so I mean, it was a big deal to Jesus. And kind of backing off that to you is hypocrisy. That's a deeper. That's like a deeper level of thing. You know that hits to the heart, and that's the one thing that Jesus came to reform. So that's. I mean, that's the core of it. Honestly, Jesus it hits to the heart of the issue, and Jesus came to change the heart, reform the heart. What else? I mean, just think about how how strange it is that hypocrisy is the only sin that someone gets struck dead for in the New Testament. How many of you have, have never been guilty of hypocrisy, religious hypocrisy? Don't raise your hand, because uh, that would probably like, make it dangerous, right? Uh, but the, uh, how many of you, I mean, we've all struggled with it. It's a sin that's commonplace amongst youth groups, a commonplace amongst campus ministries, amongst churches. Why, why else? Reflect on a little bit more. Why is it such a major deal? Jamie? Um, I think because in part it is a hidden sin. Because you can be a hypocrite all day long and it look okay. Um, because it covers up other sins. Um, because in part, Ananias and Spyro were greedy. Um, they were prideful. Um, and they used their hypocrisy to cover that up and try, make, try to make it look like righteousness. Hmm. Um, so I think because it is so inherently deceitful and damaging, and I think you start to believe it yourself in some so it's, it's, it's corrupting. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you made two interesting points. I don't know if you've, you heard him. Uh, um, one is is that it's it's so hard to... Um, I forget how you said it. <laughs> it was a great point. What was the first thing you said? Um, that it covers up other sins. Yes, thank you. That, that, uh, thank you. That's enough. No more from you. Uh, so, the, uh, yeah, so the first thing is, I mean, it, it is such a dangerous sin... Because it's the only sin that, that by its nature hides itself, right? Like, you don't know, unless you know someone really well, if this is a facade, if this is hypocrisy, if this is, if this is the, them being genuine. But the other thing is, is the, the, the temptation or the tendency for hypocrisy to lead to self-deception. That you often think that you're better than you really are because you've been a hypocrite for so long. You start to believe the lies that you're kind of telling other people. You start to believe the facade you've put on for other people. 
I heard a, a preacher one time, a, kind of a testimony. He had been, uh, um, um, he was a sex addict and was going to prostitutes. And he talked about how he had these two, his name was Nick. He had these, these two guys, Church Nick and Real Nick. And, and it was just two facades that he had eventually got to the point where, where he just kind of identified with Church Nick. Like that's who he was. You know, even though he was the sinner, he just kind of let that hypocrisy, the, the facade he put out for the people, become his identity. And it kind of helped him live for years with, with the sex addiction and going to prostitutes and not dealing with it. What else? Any other reflections on, on, on why he put James? Um, because vulnerability and hmm. the honesty about our sinfulness is how we glorify God. Like, that, like the fact that we're all, that we're one body and that we're all oftentimes awful, uh, cruel or spiteful or impatient or what have you, people, and that we can work together, uh, that we can accomplish things for the kingdom is, is proof that there's something else operating here uh, hmm. without, without kind of, that kind of honesty. Uh, it, it's not. Right? So we just look like uncommonly good people doing uncommonly good things. Yeah. So it kills transparency. You don't really know people. Um, I th- uh, as I was reflecting on this today, I was thinking about all these things. I mean, there's a huge danger with a lack of transparency because if, if hypocrisy takes root in a body, you can have serious, severe sins, destroying people's lives, destroying other people's lives, but then no one kind of is aware of it because it's all under the surface. But I was also thinking about how hypocrisy is a lie about God. Because think about what, what we as Christians claim. Think about what... Um, why we claim we our lives have been changed. Like our lives have been changed not because we're strong enough, not because we're great enough, not because we've collected enough tips, life hacks that we change our lives and they're just better now. Christians claim that our lives, that our righteousness, our holiness, our virtues come because God has changed our life. Now put that in terms of a hypocrite. A hypocrite is telling other people a lie. Because they're saying that God has done all this stuff in my life when He really hasn't. They're putting on a facade about, about what's, what's really been changed in our life when God hasn't changed that aspect. You know, think about um, Christ has sent His disciples out into the world. And the thing that He wants to sh- them to, to display is be witnesses of the power of Christ in their lives. We talked a few weeks ago in Acts chapter 3 about how the man who was lame from birth was healed by Jesus Christ and how that was a great witness to people of the power of Christ. Think about how muddied that witness becomes in the church when you have people going around pretending that their lives have been changed, pretending that God has done something powerful in them when they really haven't been changed, when it's all a facade, when it's all... Um, uh, kind of an an act that you're making claims about what God has done in your life when God really hasn't changed you in that way and that's dangerous because you're not letting people really see what God has done can you imagine what it does to non-believers if they can no longer trust that the people who call themselves Christians have really been changed when they can no longer trust if the people who are their neighbors or co-workers who say they're Christians really are people who are righteous, really are people who are being displayed the holiness of God. Can you imagine how damaging that would be to the mission of God, the mission of the church? 
if we were going around pretending that God has done something great in our lives, when reality is that's just an act. So there is a lack of transparency. There's a tendency to self-deception. But there's also a lie about what God has done in your life. Are you guilty of that? I mean, I led you know, into this segment by talking about how common hypocrisy is. Are you putting on kind of airs? Are you putting on an act? Are you putting a display for people as if your life has really been changed when it comes to purity or greed or the concern for the lost or the concern for the hurting and the poor? And it's not really something that God has done in your life but you just know that people will respect you more in, in a kind of a campus ministering culture. Or your parents will think more highly of you. Or your youth ministry will think more highly of you. If you pretend to really have been changed in this way. You know, God doesn't need your help in that way. God, God is powerful enough. What He wants to do in your life is great enough that He doesn't need you to pretend that you're something that you're not. And I think one of the dangers here is that by pretending that, Pretending that our lives really are changed, uh, change, as James says, that we start to create a community of people who aren't aware of our, of our true brokenness, which means we're not aware of our true need for God's power. And the end result is that by masquerading as if God has changed our lives, we start to cut ourselves off from the very power of God because we're no longer open to God because we start to believe our own lies. Can you imagine the cancer, to use uh, uh, Andrew's word, the cancer that would have taken place in, these disciples, in the lives of these early disciples if, if God had just allowed people to be hypocrites and there was no more honesty, there's no more vulnerability, there's no more people open to the power of God in their lives. How quickly the, the movement of Jesus' followers, followers would have stalled out. I think there's something more going on here that's tied in with that. I want you to see it. And one of the reasons that I haven't read on is because um, it's, it's kind of given in clues here. And I want you to see how Peter um, confronts Ananias and Sapphira. Because I want you to kind of get a hint of, of why else this is such a big problem. Verse 3. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a great thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. By the way, this is for free. This is one of the clearest uh, connections that the Holy Spirit is divine. Um, you know, if anybody ever asks you why you think the Holy Spirit's God, this is one of the passages to go to because he's lied to the Holy Spirit, and then in just a few verses later, he says, "You've not just lied to human beings, but to God." So the lie to the Holy Spirit is a lie to God, equating the two. So he says. So notice that, that Peter says, "The man and I." Notice his, his heart has been so filled by Satan. Notice the contrast that the very people of God, whom earlier we has been described have been described as being filled with the Spirit. Here, Peter describes Ananias as being filled with Satan. And notice he, you didn't have this was all at your disposal. You didn't have to give us the money. There was no compulsion. There was no necessity. You kind of decided to do this on your own. Verse five: When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. <laughs> then some young men came forward 
wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. After th- about three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Now that's, that's an interesting thing, um, you know, filling in the gaps. So somehow Ananias had been around Peter. There were other Christians around. It's clear that when he died, people were afraid. There were enough people there to carry him out and bury him. But his wife wasn't there. And three whole hours went by without her finding out that her husband had died. And not just that, but her husband had fallen dead because of his sin, because God had struck him dead, because of the judgment of God on him for his, his hypocrisy and his lie. Ananias died. And so she is brought in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. <laughs> you know, so, I don't know, you know, making this up, but they sold it for $100,000. Then they came to the church and said, we sold this land for $90,000. They give $90,000, they keep $10,000 back. Everybody thinks that these great, generous people. So when Peter confronts her, he said, did you really sell the land for $90,000? And you would think that she would start to kind of have an inclination that maybe, maybe, maybe something's up. Maybe, why are they starting to interrogate us about this? But she says, yeah, that's exactly how much that we paid. In verse 9, Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test, notice what shows up again here, the spirit of the Lord. Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young man came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. So these are unique events. Again, nowhere else in the, in, in the New Testament is someone struck dead for their sin. It happens a few times in the Old Testament, but not, not with this kind of dramatic fashion. Not, it seems like there's a crowd of, of disciples who have gathered, and Peter pronounces the judgment, and, and Ananias first, and then three hours later, Sapphire. They die because of this. And I think one thing that's difficult to see, one thing that's difficult to understand that Peter kind of brings out, is notice what he, what, what, who does he mention three times when he confronts them? Huh? Somebody said it. The Spirit. What's interesting here that's easy to lose sight of is that we believe, to use Paul's language, that we as Christians are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Earlier, the Spirit comes and dwells in these people. It fills them up. That when we're following the disciples going through um, so far in, the, in Acts, you're not just following people who are, have good ideas, you, you're, you're following people who God lives among them. In the same way that the Jews thought that, that God dwelt, that God was present in the Holy of Holies, so now the Christians believe that God no longer resides there, but that God is presence, present among His people. Think about what Luke is showing us. Think about why God would, 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 would um, inspire Luke to write down these stories of these two people being struck dead. Think about why God, early in the history of the church, in a fairly unique circumstance, would strike dead two people for a sin that all of us are guilty of. And it's that at the very beginning of this movement, it's easy to lose sight of this, that, that God does not just call these people, not, not just call these disciples to go out into the world to be their witnesses, to be His witness, to be a witness of Christ. But they're also to be a holy people. That they're not just salespeople with a message to take out and convince other people of. It's not like you going out and trying to get people to vote for your candidate at the election. 
Christians don't just have a good message that you're trying to convince other people of. The claim from the very opening verses of Acts is that these are people whom God's very Spirit is going to dwell in. And I think this is important for the church, and I think it's important as, as, as a ministry. We think more in you know, our, our title and our fall retreat and, and our push for international ministry. We really want to be a group of people who go out into the world, who go out and, and share the gospel and reach the people around us, who take care of the hurting and the lost and, and the poor in the name of Christ. That in the midst of that, in the midst of a people being given a mission, in the midst of a people being sent out into the world by the God, we are called to live holy lives, lives that reflect the holiness of God. Now, because we're not familiar with the Old Testament, we don't even think anything about it, right? But, but we're called and have to balance this, this, this drive to go out into the world with this balance to be people who are worthy to have God, be, uh, to have God live among them. That, let me put it this way, that the same people who are empowered by the Spirit to do God's mission are called to live lives worthy of God. You can't separate the two. God hasn't empowered you to do great things, but not empowered you to live holy lives. And it's easy to forget that when, when we make this claim that the Spirit of God has fallen down and, you know, in Acts chapter 2, that... that um, so repent, be baptized, and blah, 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 and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we kind of go over that as church talk. But in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit, the presence of God, is a big deal because the only time you see God pictured, the only time you see God image in the Old Testament, what they talk about is how great and awe-inspiring and, and, and holy He is. Think about Isaiah 6, if you're not familiar with the first few verses of Isaiah 6, I encourage you to read it. But it's this picture of the greatness and the majesty of God. God is not someone whom you're going to be kind of, um, and I hate to say this because you might interpret it wrong, but you're not, you're not going to be um, buddy-buddy and kind of, um, there's a word I'm searching for and I can't, I can't find it. Um, but you're not going to, people in the scriptures aren't at ease around God. People don't find God this, an easy being to be around, even those who are following him. But when Jesus dies to, to, to unite us and put us in a relationship with God, it doesn't mean that we take that lightly. You still in Revelation, when you, get the, when you get the pictures of the throne room of God, you get greatness and majesty. And so when Acts and the whole New Testament makes this claim that God's followers, that the followers of Jesus are going ha- to be indwelt by the Spirit of God, that you've got to understand that this is, not just, um, this is not just an amazing empowerment. But this is an incredible responsibility. Because if the God, who is all holy and all righteous and all good, resides in you, if the very place on this earth that we believe that God dwells is in His people, then isn't there this expectation that His people would reflect His character, His holiness, be holy as your Father in heaven is holy? And there's this danger as you read this, and I think this is why Peter keeps coming back to the Holy Spirit, that I, and I think this is why that God takes this moment and does this, this amazing but frightening miracle and strikes these two people dead, is to remind the church that no matter how exciting it is, no matter how much it's, it's spreading, no matter, no matter how much they see people's lives changed, that they're still called to holiness. They're still called to righteousness. Because God dwells in them and they are God's people. 
earlier I said the hypocrisy is a lie about God. But think about this, that we are called to be uh, images of God as Christians. Um, in, 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 um, often in, in, in Hebrew, a way that you would describe that somebody had a certain characteristic is you, say, you would say they were a child or a son of that thing. You know? So you would say that, that, um, that Jamie is strong. You would say that Jamie is the son of strength. And so think about when we go around and you think, <laughs> think about when we go around and we, and we say that we are children of God. We're not just making a claim about God being the creator. We're making a claim about our lives reflecting God. And if a non-Christian were to watch this level of hypocrisy, of deceit, of lying, if a non-Christian in, in, were to watch your life, and don't just limit it to hypocrisy, but to see lust and greed and anger and selfishness, that there's a very real sense in the New Testament that that's not just you making them, that's not just you um, letting sin reign in your life, but that is you lying in a certain sense about God. Because if God's people look a certain way, then we're making a claim that God is that way. And if God's people are, are liars and full of deceit, then you're making a claim that God is that way. You've got to realize, and, I, and I've said this, I think last year, I don't think I said this year, that most people are brought to faith not by one person, but by a community. And most non-Christians, that they come to understand God most clearly by watching the lives of Christians. And if people are watching your, your life or watching the life of, of, of the believers and they start to see these types of sin take root, that's going to kill the witness of the church. That's going to kill the mission of the church because people are going to think that that is a reflection of how our God is. Listen to non-Christians talk who are frustrated with how church people have treated them. It ends up reflecting on how they think about God. And so it doesn't surprise me this early on in Acts that God takes this kind of um, intervention to emphasize and uphold the holiness of His people. Because His mission for His church is never, ever in Scripture separated from the holiness of His people. We will never reach this campus if our lives don't look holy. We will never reach the non-believers, if they can't see our community and see that our lives reflect something different. Yes, we're still sinners. Yes, we still make mistakes. Yes, every day we need the grace of God, as did the early church. But if we're making a claim that God lives in our midst, don't you think that that should be visible? Don't you think that that should have some kind of impact on our lives? Don't you think that that should translate into righteousness and holiness and purity and love and selflessness and openness and transparency and vulnerability and all the things that we've mentioned that are important for the people of God? Because non-believers are going to look and they're going to see these things. And they're going to get the wrong impression of our God. Not to mention the fact that it's almost sacrilegious to live that way and be comfortable and complacent that way if God lives in you to make you holy. If God lives in you as His dwelling place. So how are you doing with that? 
as we've very much focused and stressed and pushed so far this year, that we as a body want to reach the campus, that we as, as, as Christians want other people to come to faith? Are you living lives of righteousness and purity that are worthy to have God dwell in our midst, that are worthy to be people whom God's very Spirit lives in? By the way, every time that Paul comes back to that in the New Testament, it's over issues of sin. Every time. You can go, you can go do a Bible check on that. Every time he stresses that God's Spirit lives in his people, it's to call his people to holiness. And I'll have to say that as, as I was um, uh, earlier this year when I was thinking about what I was going to teach um, in, in, the, in, in uh, this academic year, and I, and, and I started feeling kind of pulled towards Acts and wanting to teach Acts. One of my concerns was that I was concerned that we had spent so much time, which is, this isn't necessarily a bad thing, but we would spent almost all our time talking about being disciples who go out and are sent on a mission, are sent to be witnesses and to reach the campus, and that there's very little in Acts that starts to really address issues of, of righteousness. And I was concerned that maybe there's an imbalance that would come in in the ministry, that if we were just talking about going out and reaching the laws and reaching the laws and reaching the laws, but never were stressing that God's making a claim on your life for you to live holy lives. That God is not happy with you being complacent in your sin. I was worried that if we didn't, if we didn't do that, that we might end up with a year, end up the year with people who are kind of bought into the mission, but aren't living lives that are worthy of what God has called them to. And, and to be honest with you, that's, that's particularly um, pressing because um, every year, every year there's always like one or two points in the year where, where somebody from outside the ministry will come to me and kind of say, do you know what some of your students are doing? <laughs> About two weeks ago I had, I had this incident. And as a minister it's always kind of hard because I didn't, you know, like, you guys are in my ministry, and there's this identity, and it's, and it's embarrassing on the one hand, but also on the other hand, worrisome to hear people say, like, I've seen people in your ministry doing things that aren't honoring God. And what do I say to that? You know, God has told um, His people not to be given over to drunkenness, and they're like, well, we've seen people at parties, drunk, a bunch of your students. And I'm like, okay, you know, I don't ask for names, I don't think that's a healthy gossip thing. And so, I mean, not, that's not just this year. I'm talking about that's every year. You know why? Because that's campus ministry, right? Uh, I was telling some of my campus ministry friends that, like, I'm stupid because every year I'm like, well, we finally got over these issues, right? We're not going to have issues. Uh, we finally got over kind of the partying and, and the sleeping around and all that. And it's like next year. It's like, wow, okay, people are still struggling with sin. Who knew, right? Um, and, and so, I mean, part of it is just it's a rotation of students. You're on a college campus. You're being tempted. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I get that. But on the other hand, it's, 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 um, it's concerning to me because I know that it's so easy to build a ministry around you guys having friendships and you guys coming to events, but, but not, reflect, not having lives that reflect what God has called us to reflect. And there are issues in our ministry, there's issues in every ministry, where the ways we are living do not reflect the character of God. They're not worthy of us being people amongst whom God dwells. And, and that grieves God, the, the phrase that Paul uses, grieving the Holy Spirit, that's in the context of sin, that grieves God, that damages the, the, the mission of God's church, but that also damages those of you 
who are engaged in that way but are kind of papering it over with hypocrisy. Because you're deceiving yourselves. You're lying to yourselves about your true need for God. And that's not a good place to be. It's not a healthy place to be. And I think that we can take this story um, to warrant me saying that it's a dangerous place to be. Hypocrisy is dangerous to the church. Unrighteousness is dangerous to the church. God has called us to something other than that. You know, um, we put up the only slide I have. <clears throat> Paul, when he writes, and he's writing in Romans chapter 6, um, and, and he says, Or do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. So he's, he's appealing to all these Christians, and they've all been baptized. And he says that, you know, think about what happened in baptism, that you guys died to the old person. There's, you know, I mean, Christ talks about being born again, and Paul's using this imagery with baptism, that you die to the old self so you can be born again to a new life. At the end of, of verse 4, he says, we too may live a new life. But notice how he, what he says in verse 6 and 7. He says, for we know that our old, selves was crucif- old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. When Paul talks about this moment of, of God's great action in your life where you are born again, Paul says you're not just born again, you're born again to a new life, a life of holiness, that you will no longer be slaves to sin. And, 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 and when God sees in his midst people who are enslaved to sin, notice this language to Ananias, your heart has been so filled with Satan that you would do such a thing as to lie and deceive and be a hypocrite. The scriptures take this seriously only because we've been called to such um, high standards. And we've been called to those standards, not because you are such great people, but because God has done such a great thing among you. And I encourage you to reflect on this. Are your lives worthy of being dwelling places of the Holy Spirit? Are your lives, is your life imaging the holiness and righteousness of the God who created you, who gave you new life? Because the first time that Luke highlights, and, I, and by the way, you know, set up this way. I don't believe that the, that there were no sin, or that there had been no sin going on before this. But the first time in, in Luke's very compressed story of the early church that he stops to highlight sin, he doesn't just point out that people were sinning. He points out that God severely judged those who sin, because Luke took the the holiness and purity seriously, way more seriously than we do. Because he knows that the holiness and righteousness of God's people are important to the very God who dwells amongst his people. I appreciate you guys listening to me. I know you have a lot to do. Um, um, I, I encourage you to reflect more on this. If you have any questions, you can talk to me about it afterwards. Um, let's stand and sing, and we'll close in prayer in a few songs.